Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm sat in my conservatory in sunny Buckinghamshire looking out at the garden, which is overgrown because of the rain. Vicky's over in deepest darkest Oxfordshire. Vicky, who have we got on the podcast today as our guest? So today we've got Gabe Barrett. And Gabe and I don't know each other that well. We actually met through Paul Russell, who was a previous podcast guest of ours, through a design thinking group. And I just remember listening in on the design thinking group and being totally blown away by Gabe. And then we had a follow-up chat where Gabe's got such an interesting background and where the majority of our guests are in the tech industry, actually in vendors or partners. Gabe comes from the customer side of things. But what he was talking about that was so fascinating was about misaligned purpose within organisations. So I'm sure we're going to come on to that. But it's just a real treat to have Gabe as a guest. So thanks very much, Gabe. Fantastic. Welcome, Gabe. So perhaps you had best start after that illustrious introduction, giving us um, (laughs) something of a high level career history, if you don't mind, just for purposes of introducing you to our guests. And thank you so much for having me here today. So my career really starts when I went to university, when I thought I was going to be an aerospace engineer and ended up mostly a rugby player and then (laughs) actually studied geology. But those were those were two quite formative experiences, being on a rugby team and studying a science uh, at a university in the States where the rocks were not the main point. It was the process of critical thinking, research and analysis and communication. After that, I had a stint in management consulting and started to focus more and more in risk management, especially around the science of decision making. And then took a bit of a turn into tech and got into cybersecurity. And then from cybersecurity, in my last role, I was the chief information officer for Abellio, which is one of the UK's largest public transport organizations. That's quite um, a run. <laughs> yeah, and I've now, uh, I've now founded my own company called uh, Otter Intelligence, which is focusing on team building and teams, especially in a hybrid and remote context. Okay, that's really interesting. Why Otter? Because otters are smart, adaptive animals who work well in teams. Ah, excellent. And they can use tools. And they can use tools. And they're really cute. And so they're going to make for some... They are, they are cute. My, my daughter has a, a group, I think, on WhatsApp where they receive a daily cute otter pick. So she's got hundreds of cute pictures of otters if you ever need one. <laughs> I'll come calling for some otter pictures. <laughs> fantastic so i mean that's a that's a really good range of experiences there so you know i can see why you've got a huge amount of value in a a consultancy situation of all of that massive experience what's your biggest kind of takeaway what's your biggest thrust of interest it's not the i would say functional area that i've worked in that's never been the most interesting thing the most interesting thing for me has always been getting groups of people to work together and usually groups that are spread out across different offices, across different countries, across different functions. And it's the people that I've come to learn and come to enjoy as being the most fascinating part of it. And that the role of a leader is not to be the best at doing one particular functional job. It's to enable a group of 
usually more talented, more experienced, uh, better trained in that particular functional area, enabling them to do their best work. That absolutely makes sense. I used to say to my guys at Softcat that you know I was just I was just a pitch man. I was just responsible for getting them in front of the the senior management team and in front of the sales guys and in front of as, as many customers as possible. I was just the guy with the arrogance to stand up in front of people, whereas they were the guys who actually knew what they were doing, which turned turned out to be true, which is rather good. So it sounds like you've come to exactly the same conclusions as Vicky and the Amplified Group. The people element is the sine qua non, the you know the most important thing. Absolutely, and I think it's only going to become even more important going forward that we identify and address that fact explicitly rather than implicitly. Because a lot of organizations will say, oh, our people are our most important resource or they're the most important thing about the company, but then they don't act in that way. Yeah, they pay lip service to it. They absolutely pay lip service to it. But as jobs are, as some jobs, and we can talk about the nature of which jobs, become increasingly automated, what's going to be left are the jobs and the new jobs that require things that only people can do, that require empathy and emotion and creativity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely all about people. And it's also about groups of people. We're long past the point where an individual, if an individual in fact ever could, be responsible for some great piece of work. Everything now is going to be created in collaborations. This week, interestingly, is the 100th anniversary of Einstein's lecture where he revealed his theory on relativity. Wow. Einstein is often seen as this, you know, eccentric loner genius. You know, he was amazing. He changed everything. And that's true, but he didn't do it in isolation and he didn't do it in a vacuum. It built on other work that was happening around him. And he, he actually went out of his way to say that, but that was never actually the message that was picked up. But even these incredible usher transformations in how we see the world are not the product of one person alone in a lab or a factory or a room thinking. It, it, it doesn't work like that, does it? You know, you, you test your ideas out on other people and you know, you balancing stuff backwards and forwards helps you to hone your own ideas. And, you know, even if you're the lead thinker in that area, you're absolutely right. You cannot do it alone. No, absolutely not. So the foundational capability that will be the difference between organizations thriving and organizations failing. I think what you've, what you've just said there, Sam, as well, I mean, we've, we, we've talked about this, but we've really experienced that recently at the Amplified Group of, the fact that we are just getting so many great insights that are helping us define how we better support our clients. And, you know, Gabe and I were talking about this last week. But something that I'm really keen to explore some more, Gabe, is the fact that we've both had a journey through technology. And something that I heard you say the other day was um, on a webinar that you were doing was about the fact that we have been dominated by tech, but now we're going to be fueled by tech and the importance of the humanization. Uh, can you just expand on that a bit more for us? Sure. What I, what I meant by that was the, the exponential rate of technology developments and improvements over the last few decades have massively outpaced humans' 
linear thinking style. So technology developments have almost run away to a large extent. Social media is probably the best example of this. Certainly the one that people can relate to the most where the technology development, we didn't understand the consequences of it. It took on a life of its own and a life very much driven by a small number of individuals that took on this thing. And so it's, it's radically reshaped how we engage with the world, how we engage with each other, how we, how we engage with things that were previously thought to be fundamental, like truth and facts have become malleable. Yeah. The whole whole lived experience thing, as opposed to truth, which I think is really interesting. I I think lived experience is something else, but we can maybe come onto that later if we talk about diversity and and I think the Mm. importance of recognizing somebody's lived experience. I'm talking about the difference between, you know, you you can't have your own facts. You can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own facts. And Mm. that's not the prevailing necessarily opinion at the moment so we've as a society started to question things that previously were were not open to questioning and some of that's good some of that's bad Mm. but i think where we're getting to now is we're starting to talk about this we're starting to talk about how do we harness these technologies for good and how do we adapt to this increased rate of transformation. You know, we used to be periods of development and then stable and then a new development and then stable. And, and that's not the case now. It's, it's just it's constant change, constant change. And we need to learn to adapt to that and organizations need to learn to adapt to that so that we are being fueled by technology rather than driven by technology that we decide where it goes and what use it's put to as a society, which is going to be difficult because we're quite a fractured society at the moment, more polarized than we've, than we've ever been. There's a very strong individualistic streak and bent to to Western democracy in particular that has replaced the good of the many with the rights of the one. Yeah. Agree with that. And that makes it difficult for there to be collective decisions around where we take particular technology. Really interesting, really interesting. Look forward to digging into that in a bit more detail, I think. Um, so Vicky mentioned in the introduction, your challenge around misaligned purpose within an organization. Would you mind going into a bit of detail on that, please? It's something I've seen in a lot of organizations, actually. Uh, but my most, my most recent experience probably illustrates it the best. So a train company, you would think the purpose of the train company is to get you know, the most people from A to B, you know, to get them yeah. on their journey. On, on time, safely. On, on time, safely. In, in a reasonable degree of comfort, yeah. And and for a reasonable price, you know. So that, yes. would, be, that would be a consumer's view of what a train company should do. But that's not actually how a train company works. And a train company is not a single entity. Now, this all predates COVID, and we can talk a little bit about what's changed since then. So in the pre-COVID world, a group like Abellio would win a tender to run a particular line, a particular collection of lines for a length of time around seven to 10 years. So Abellio had five train companies. 
But those train companies had their genesis in British Rail. And while the ownership of that any one individual company would change every seven to 10 years, maybe longer if the same company won it again, the people, to a large extent, hadn't changed that much. So these companies were staffed by people who had come from British Rail, a nationalized rail organization. And they were now Effect, effectively a public sector body, I suppose. Effectively in those days. a public sector body. And importantly, it meant they had a public sector mindset and mentality about what their purpose was, which was different to what the group thought the purpose was. So the group's purpose was to make money. And I don't mean that in a harsh way to say that capitalism is bad and evil, but their purpose was making money. And that meant meeting all the requirements of the contracts. The people who actually worked on the front lines, the drivers, their priorities were quite different. And I spent a day at Houston Station once looking at operations because I wanted to understand what does this company do. And I had uh, an experience that's always going to stay with me. So the train was leaving Houston, uh, going up north, and the whistle had blown to say, right, that's it, closing the doors. The dispatcher was standing on the platform getting ready to give the signal that would allow, that would tell the driver that it's okay to start moving on the train. And a young family comes running down the ramp. If you know Houston, coming running down the ramp. And what the dispatcher should have done by procedure is told them, sorry, you've missed the train. You'll have to get the next one. It's over there on platform, whatever. But instead, he didn't press the button to say to the driver, you can leave. I could see him with his hand over it. He was beckoning their family to run. And so they sprinted and they got on the train. And 28 seconds late, the train left the station. So 28 seconds probably doesn't sound like such a big deal, but you're never going to get that time back. And it's only going to get worse. So that small delay is going to propagate throughout the network. And I looked at this and I thought, when he goes home at the end of the day and his kids say, hey, daddy, how was your day at work? He might say, oh, my dad was great because he will have gotten an emotional serotonin bounce from that young family making it onto the train. Who knows where they were going, going to see a loved one, going on a family outing. But he will have gotten an immediate I did a good thing brain reward, not a oh, I caused congestion and delay to 700 people, perhaps in various trains down the line. And that's what made me think about this idea of we don't have aligned purpose in in very many companies, all the way from the top down, starting because we don't have clarity of purpose. Very few companies are able to say what their purpose is. And to be clear, making money is not a purpose. It is what allows you to achieve their purpose. I'm don't have an issue with making money. It but isn't, isn't in, to some degree making money a happy accident of having a, a, a good purpose that everybody's behind. I don't think it's a happy accident. Uh, if you're if you're a nonprofit, it's different. But if you're if you're a yeah, yeah. company, it's not. It's more than a happy accident because if you don't yeah. make money, you're not going to be able to run your company, so you won't be able to achieve your purpose. You won't be able to entice more people in to scale it to achieve more of your purpose. So it's very important. And it needs to be part of this, but it's not the purpose itself. Makes sense. 
so from your perspective, when when you first told me that story, it felt like the different levels within the organisation almost had conflicting purpose. Mm -hmm. And that caused a challenge for you. Yes, they had conflicting purpose and conflicting identity around what it is they were there to do and who we were as a company, who they were as employees. And that makes getting anything done very challenging because you can't align it to a North Star. You can write the best business case in the world. But if some parts of the organization simply don't care about that particular thing that you're trying to do, you're not going to achieve it. And you can spin a really good line and you can make most things, you know, attach. But it's very obvious when it's not fundamentally important to what an organization is doing. So it makes any kind of cross-departmental, cross-functional objective almost impossible to meet. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely see that. And actually, um, I've been super proud this morning because we've just taken a team that we worked with two and a half years ago. They've just done our speed check. And when we're talking about speed to market, in, in the tech industry, we, we look at four different elements, which is purpose, trust, clarity, and simplicity. And these guys have scored 89% on purpose in their leadership team. And the alignment there is just amazing. And it's, it's been really, really lovely to see because when we worked with them two and a half years ago, they were all over the show. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that all over the show is probably the overwhelming majority of senior yeah. leadership teams. Yeah. I think they're one of the trickiest teams, actually. If you go down into, into a function, into a HR team or an IT team or a sales team, there's a lot of commonality of purpose and experience. But when you're talking about a senior leadership team, they're generally from different verticals. And so have different experiences, have different priorities, have different goals, and are often strangers to each other. John Amici, who's a fabulous organizational psychologist, was talking about this recently, saying, how can you be a team when you're strangers, when you don't know each other? And so that that team having gone from one to the other shows the other important thing, which I think a lot of people are uncomfortable sometimes talking about leadership, teamwork, because it's thought of as an attribute that you've got. You're either good at leadership or you're you're a good team player or you're not. And that's not true. These are skills. These are skills that everybody can be better can at. Learn. Some people can be yeah. accept, but everybody can learn them. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. And and that's really drives us to do what we do because it's taking particularly because some people I think it comes more naturally too. Mm-hmm. But actually it's subconscious and it's bringing it to the conscious and putting it on the table. And a lot of what we do seems so blooming obvious. Isn't, isn't that always the case though, in hindsight, yeah. that it's, it seems so obvious, but just because something's obvious doesn't mean it's easy. And these can be tough skills to learn because they, they speak to our sense of ourselves and how we value ourselves. So I could think this is tricky space for people to enter into especially if they do it unsupported. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, agree with that. It's easy to say that something is is simple, but find that it's actually bloody hard work to execute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Simple in reality. 
different things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. If yeah. you look at the senior, you know, the demographic of senior leadership, these tend to be people who are fairly well advanced in their careers and acting in a certain way has gotten them to that point. It served them very well. They're now in these senior leadership positions with a lot of authority, power, money that comes along with that. And they're going to struggle because what got them to where they are isn't going to get them to where the organization needs them to be. And it's a big ask to say to someone, well, thanks for your, you know, 20 year career, uh, but all the skills you have are no longer relevant. You need to be completely different. That is emotionally a very, very devastating blow to give to someone. And so I think that's why support is so important for senior leadership teams, because you don't want to get rid of all the knowledge and experience. And you certainly don't want to demotivate your teams. Yeah, makes sense. So as with everything else that you're doing at the minute, running your own business and so on, you appear to have chosen to do a master's in organizational psychology. Was that yeah. necessarily such a good idea? <laughs> well, well, if it's not hard, it's not worth doing. Well, exactly, exactly. I like to challenge myself. And the reason for doing the master's in organizational psychology is, is twofold for me. The first is I've had an interest in all these areas for quite a long time, behavioral economics, science of decision-making, but I wanted to pull them together into a cohesive framework. And so going through a master's in organizational psychology will give me some of the groundwork that I might've skipped over had I done it as, as an undergraduate. So that there's that aspect of it. The second though, which is the part that really excites me is doing research, going back and doing research for the first time in 20 years uh, is really is really quite exciting, being able to access all the current research that's going on out there, but also the fact that we are in a field that is quite new because of COVID. So the field of developing teams, that's not new, the field of developing teams in a hybrid world, now that's new. And so there's, the future is up for design, as I like to say. There is no pre-existing benchmark of exactly how you should do this. There's no established you know, best practice. There's a lot of trial, there's going to be a lot of trial and error. There's going to be a lot of great ideas that are going to then need to be expanded on modified, improved, and that's very exciting to be at the start of something new. See, it's funny, I don't see it. I, I know it's new mainstream, yes, but I don't see it as that new in the way that some people are describing it because it's it feels like that's how I've always worked. The hybrid world, and, and we get, this will be quite a good debate to have, I think, eh? because to me, the hybrid world is... Sometimes you're in the office together, sometimes you're not. And you are, I mean, I I ran virtual teams across Europe and globally. And the teams, we would get together in person maybe once or twice a year. But most of the time we were we were working it's remotely. A, it's a physical and logistical impossibility yeah. to be all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But the team spirit that we had and what we achieved together I think we were in that hybrid world, but my goodness, we, we got a lot done. So I think 
I, I get it's not the norm for the majority of people, but I think I'm quite privileged to have had that experience. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, my, my group at Softcat were broadly similar because, you know, particularly when I had handed over the services operations stuff and was focusing on the, the office of the CTO and the, the consulting aspect, almost by definition, that team was in front of customers 80% of the time. So we, we were like ships that passed in the night, but every so often we'd get together, we'd have a nice dinner and maybe a glass or two of red wine and that would bring it, bring everybody together. And that, you know, that team spirit endures. You know, I haven't been officially part of it for three years. I'm, I'm still on the WhatsApp group and, you know, we still chat. In fact, <laughs> yeah. Dylan, who, who kind of took over, is coming around for brunch tomorrow. So, you know, that team spirit endures, despite the fact that we were very, very rarely all in one place. Yeah. So well, maybe, Gabe, you think about it from a, from a different perspective. Yes. So I think there are two aspects there that are worth bringing into the light. And the first is the idea of self-selection. So there are a couple of companies that are completely remote, but they were designed from the start as completely remote. So they only attracted to them and retained the people who worked within that system. So they were self-selecting. And there are certainly in the tech world, slightly more teams that work like that than in the non-tech yeah. world. Yeah. So first there's this idea of self-selection. And now we're talking about companies with pre-existing cultures and with pre-existing people moving to a new way. So that, that transition is new. Yes. So I think that's one aspect. The second then is we're talking about a systemic change. We're not talking about one team going from being in the office to being virtual. We're talking about entire structures moving to a new way of working. So a lot of processes will have been built up based on the idea of co-location. Those processes may not be written down. And there's a lot of work that's not explicit that's going to need to be made explicit. So for example, I was talking to a very large law firm uh, in the past couple of weeks and their training method for new lawyers is to learn on the job. It's essentially an apprenticeship model. You, you come in and you learn from the senior lawyers. So what they're finding is the junior staff, they're the ones who want to come back into the office because they want to learn. They also don't want to be on their own in their bedroom. They would rather be with their mates. And then after a hard day at the office, you go to the pub and complain about how hard work was. You know, it makes it a lot more fun, but they need to learn. And so they need to be there and they need to, to be with the senior lawyers. The senior lawyers, though, they don't need to be there. They've got their existing networks. They've got their existing knowledge. They could do the work of the client brief perfectly fine remotely. They're probably also very, very comfortable and very pleasant yeah. to be at home. Whereas <laughs> the new, the newer guys, even new lawyers, are probably in rented flats and shared accommodation and things. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Probably three or four to a, you know, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. flat share or house share. And so there's the absolutely there's the social side to it. But I think the important thing is to make explicit what the work actually is. It's not just completing the client brief. It's bringing on board the new lawyers. Uh, and there's a lot of emotional work that happens in a workplace that's not explicit. So the people who organize the team events or the lunches or the birthdays, 
that's not explicit. And if it's not explicit, it means it's not valued. And in the future world of work, we will need to be very careful about how we measure and ascribe value to work. So if it becomes merely the production of the service or good, it will become all about efficiency, which will kill creativity, which will kill innovation, and it will kill any sense of team spirit or purpose. So the things we choose to measure, and by definition, therefore, the things we are ascribing value to, will need to be chosen very carefully. Is there also an angle with the value thing? And I'm thinking out loud here, which means it's probably wrong. Um, that in a hybrid world where you're almost effectively being paid for your output rather than your presence, that the value of that output is more important perhaps than it would otherwise been because nobody's there to witness you being in the office long hours, you know, putting the hard yards in. All they get is whether you've hit your sales number or whether you've produced the, the requisite documents or, or whatever. Is there mm. an angle there, do you think? I definitely think it moves us to an outcomes, not hours way of thinking yeah. about things. But we need to make sure we're including a broader definition of outcomes or outputs, that it's not just the work package. It's about the creation of the culture and the creation of the team environment as well. If that's the kind of company you work in, if you work yeah. in a company where the only thing is the production of the good or service, then you'll have a yeah. very different culture arising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I get, yeah, if you're just com Acme com Corp that produces a particular widget, you want to pump as many widgets out the door as possible, I suppose, don't you? And, and maybe, maybe that's all there is to it in that scenario. But I think all three of us would probably work for a company with a bit more purpose than that. Yeah, and that's all well and good until that widget is no longer useful in the world, until it's supplanted yes. something else. Yeah. And then the yeah. desperately trying to grow its, you know, a shrinking market by producing, you know, more widgets faster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cut costs, which means it's an even less pleasant place to be. And then people start to leave and you're in that downward spiral that I've heard referred to as circling the drain. Yes. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. nice. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's the tech industry in a nutshell, isn't it? Because with the innovation that's coming through, if you're not, constantly innovating whatever mm. you're creating whatever the tech is it's going to be out of date something is going to be better quicker faster more effective there's going to be a new solution in the market and you need to be constantly innovating and it comes it comes down to that innovation that you were talking about probably that that introduced us to each other in the first place Gabe through the design thinking and that whole <laughs> being able to be creative and having the right environment there in the first place but something I think we we have experienced at the Amplified Group that people are starting to see the value more in culture and team experience and I think that you know there are organizations I mean Softcat where Sam used to work is a great example that they they had this consciously and worked at it every day but I think there are more organizations starting to recognize the importance of it but i'd be really interested to know how how do you think you can measure that so culture is an interesting one and the way people talk about culture can mean different things like yes culture is important culture just is culture is an emergent property 
you get a group of people together for any length of time, you get culture. British people queuing for a bus, great example of difference in culture to a group of Americans waiting for a bus. So you always get this. And what organizations are starting to, I think, realize is your culture shapes your organization. The shape of your organization shapes your culture. It's not something you can direct. You can't command and control culture. You can have a command and control culture, but you can't say our culture is going to be this and make it so. Culture is the collective experience of people. It's the collective behaviors of people. It's what's rewarded, what's punished. And so when we talk about culture, I don't like good versus bad culture. I think what's important is behaviors. Yeah. So you can have a set of behaviors that lead to a culture that aligns with your purpose. That would be that would be good culture. Now, you might have a nefarious purpose. Your purpose might be to, you know, take over the world and rule from a volcano with a laser and a bald cat. Uh, but you could have you could have a culture that is completely aligned with that by having behaviors that enable that. So that's my take on culture, that it's really about behaviors and behaviors are absolutely measurable. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's two points from, for me on that. One was, Sam, I don't know if you remember, but when we had Mark Templeton on, we were talking about culture with him. His definition of culture was it's how you get stuff done which I think is actually summing up what you what you just said there, Gabe. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing is measuring behaviours. Well, that's absolutely what we do with the assessments that, that we run, starting with the five behaviours. And the fundamental one for us, for any healthy culture, and I, I get your point about, you know, you can't say whether it's a good or bad culture, but a healthy culture to me is a culture that's got really strong trust and it has to start with that. And you can agree. absolutely measure it. Absolutely. And I, I have my own personal views on what I think a healthy culture is. I think the, the point was just that it can be different for different companies, but yes. I completely agree. The other thing that really bothers me is values. When people talk just about come values, on to that. corporate values, honesty. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, so if you didn't, if you didn't say that on your wall, you would have actually turned around and lied to me. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. to be. But also, how do you measure honesty? Yeah. You can, but it's measure is behavior. Your value should be, we will always tell the truth, even if it's something you don't want to hear. It's like the sales guy who says, to be honest with you, and you know damn well that there's, there's a lot coming. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I actually love Lencioni's definition of values, and he has some, there's what well, you've just been describing there on um, the honesty. Um, we would describe those or he describes them as baseline values. So mm -hmm. these values, I mean, you wouldn't want to hire anybody that you didn't think was honest. So there's baseline values, but then there's also the values are how is it, what makes us different to our competition? What is it? How do we get things done? Mm -hmm. What are our behaviors that make us different? And those are the, those are how, and then there's the aspirational values, which is what people tend to do is this is where we want to go. We're aspiring to them, but they're not actually, I'm not observing them in the office today. Absolutely. And I think that's a really straightforward way of, of thinking about them. Mm. One other way that I like thinking about values is what are you willing to pay? 
So what price, what penalty are you willing to pay to behave in a certain way? That will tell you what your values are. So if you're willing to go through the difficulty of a HR process to get rid of somebody who's behaving in an inappropriate way, that shows how you value you know, safety and integrity. On the other hand, if you are, if they're a high performer, you know, if they're that, you know, amazing high performance jerk and you're willing yeah. to tolerate their behavior, well, that shows you that you don't value those things. And actually what you value is, you know, maybe the the stream of sales coming in through this person. So that Cold price, hard cash. Yeah. That price you're willing to pay, it indicates what your values are, I think. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a really good point. We appear to have covered an enormous amount of ground. For the sake of summing it up for our listeners, Gabe, perhaps you could give us a handful of takeaways. Uh, You're welcome to stick to three if you'd rather. (laughs) I would say first is this is all about people. The future of work is all about people. Get really clear on what your purpose is, because without it, how are you going to attract people to you? And I'll stick to three and I'll go with my third being focus on behaviors and everything else will come from that. Cracking summary. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Ricky, you best uh, lead us into your favorite segment. And, and, no, uh, I'm not sure it's it my favorite. favorite. I think okay. I, I enjoy learning from the podcast. A bit like, a bit like Bruce, have, so. Bruce Forsyth. They're all your favorite segments. They're all my favorite. Exactly. Exactly. Gabe, we have talked about this briefly, but for us at the Amplified Group, you know, I think you touched on it earlier. Work, it's it's about experience. It's about feelings and it's about that emotion. And for us to get people to go that extra mile and to have that intrinsic motivation, team experience is, is what makes that happen. It's how we feel when we're working together. So what does what does team experience mean to you? Team experience. Great team experience. I should define that, shouldn't I? A great team experience is one where you do the work for each other, not for yourself. Yeah. And I mentioned at the top of the podcast that I played rugby at university. And that is the benchmark of team experience for me because it's a game you can't win by yourself. You can't even win at the same time. If you could clone yourself 14 times, you wouldn't be able to win. You need different people doing different things in order to achieve that. And you have to rely on them to go and do what they have to do to stick their head somewhere uncomfortable to get the ball so you can go do your thing. And it's that willingness to, when we played, we played for each other. And that is that is always going to be, I think, the benchmark for me of what it should feel like at a team. I don't think companies are families, but they should be teams where you're willing to do the work for each other. That's a great definition. Love it. Thank you. That's what I like that. Very cool. Having been dreadful at rugby, I'm not sure I can totally understand that. But <laughs> Well, I wasn't very good, yeah. but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you weren't as bad as I was. I, so I couldn't wear my glasses when I was playing uh, as, a, as a kid at school, and I didn't have contact lenses in those days. So I was effectively blind on the rugby pitch, and the only try I ever scored was by mistake. <laughs> but at least you got one. 
Well, at least I got one. At least I got one. I'll stick. I'll stick with cricket. But you know, the, the cricket example is the same. You know, Ben Stokes is, uh, you know, p- possibly the world's best cricketer. But if you had a team of eleven Ben Stokeses, you, you know, you wouldn't win because he's not a spinner. You know, he's not a wicketkeeper. You know, it, it's it, it just doesn't work. You're right. You you need a different set of people and balance each other each other's skills out. I think you need. For me, that interdependence is one of the fundamentals for it to be a team as opposed yes. to a group of people working together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Where you, you, you dovetail each other's skills and experiences to create mm-hmm. something that's, that's greater than the sum of its parts, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure I've seen you write that Gabe about a team. Your definition of a team is where it's a group of people that has in, interdependence. Yes. Have I seen you, is that right? Yeah. 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 I think a team is a, a group of people working towards a shared goal who are reliant on each other to achieve it. Yeah, perfect. Love that. I think we should leave it there because it doesn't get much better than that, does it? No, brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Great stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Re- very, very interesting stuff. I wish you every success with your uh, your masters and your business. I think that would be really interesting to track both of those and see where we end up. Uh, so thank you very much for being part of today's podcast and thanks to our listeners for joining us on get amplified from the amplified group today as always your comments and subscriptions are gratefully received